We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me wanna. The thing about Lamar Jackson, and during the Tennessee Titans uh, Baltimore game, I said, you know what? The Buffalo Bills probably don't want to see either of these teams. They'd rather see the Pittsburgh Steelers because of how great the rushing teams were. And when you look at Lamar Jackson, it's not only what he can do with his legs as far as what he can produce, it's what he makes you have to defend. What the defensive coordinator has to work on all week, the gap integrity, knowing the assignment-type football you have to play when you're playing against a zone option or an option team, and then just getting him on the ground. Think about the Tennessee Titans. You have the perfect defense call. You're playing man-to-man. You have a spy. It's on the 45-yard line. There's no way he's going to score from there. Psych. He gets out of the pocket, he breaks up, you're wide open in the open field with him, and you are scared. Your eyes are this big, and you understand this is the best athlete in the NFL. He gets outside and scores. And so, if you're the Buffalo Bills, this is honestly, defensively, the worst possible matchup. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger, and that was ESPN's Ryan Clark talking about how he sees Buffalo matching up with the Baltimore Ravens. It's part two of our Wild Card Victory Week Rock Pile Report podcast. Chris, we want a playoff game. We want a playoff game, okay? I don't want to hear anybody sass me over this. There was just too much to pack into one show. Yeah, you got to do it in two. The one thing that I liked about Saturday... Is that my girlfriend got to see the real you? Oh my and she god! She gets to see you again for this Saturday. <laughs> the real Drew. For anyone who missed that conversation, go check out uh, yesterday's Rock Pile Report podcast part one, where we talk with Greg Thompson from CoverOne.net. Joined us to just kind of recap our victory over Indianapolis. Chris, we could have tried to piggyback this onto the other show, and I mean, trust me. I don't like being told what to do. I firmly believe that this is my show and I can do whatever the hell I want with it. But I wasn't going to subject our listeners to a three and a half hour long podcast. Yeah, unless I have something to say about it. <laughs> you and me, like over the top arm wrestling. I don't know about arm wrestling. I would just throat punch you. <laughs> 
Good luck. My chins will get in the way. Boom. With that, folks, we're taking a giant leap into this week's preview of our 2020 AFC Divisional Round. The Baltimore Ravens are coming to Buffalo. The time, 8.15 p.m. Eastern Standard, Saturday, the 16th. Bill Stadium, Orchard Park, New York. On the call, it's the NBC crew, so we're getting L. Michaels and Chris. I make John Madden look like a Mensa candidate, Collinsworth. For the crew, not Brad Allen. That's for damn sure. Not Brad Allen. That guy can get bent. And the line right now, Bill's Bills minus two and a half at home, which underscores that Vegas doesn't even really know what to do with this. I think it will end up being a tight game. Injuries to watch. Buffalo Bills have lost Zach Moss for the season. We've signed running back Devonta Freeman, which will be interesting to see whether or not, I mean, because of the COVID protocols, I guess he's cleared to practice this week. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get him up and running and get him with the team. I mean, he's a veteran, Chris. I don't know how much... But at the same time, Kenny Stills is a veteran, and they didn't throw him out there. No. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle these recent signings. For Baltimore, they have a slew of people on their injury report, but don't be fooled, Bills fans. Last week, every single player who was limited or questionable, they all suited up and played. All of them. So I'm assuming that that same trend is going to continue into this week because I didn't see anything come out of that Tennessee game. Now, when you look at the tail of the tape between these two teams... They're fairly similar in some regards. And then there's some odd contrast. First of all, they're tied for takeaway differential. Baltimore has the most rushing yards but the in the NFL, and yet the fewest passing yards. Buffalo's 20th in rushing yards, but the third most passing yards. I mean, this matchup couldn't feature two more dramatically differing styles of football. The Baltimore, they have the top 10 defense both against the rush and the pass, while Buffalo is in the teens of each. Chris, it's still a little surreal sitting here thinking back to when we started this podcast. Thinking thinking about the Rex Ryan era, when we thought that's when we were going to see glory in a Bills uniform. Yeah, you were... Those early days, you were really optimistic. And when the bottom fell out, Rex Ryan fired... We're on our, like, year three of Festivus, just trying to air our grievances and cling to sanity. Did you ever think we'd be sitting here doing a preview for a home AFC division round game? Yeah, as soon as we drafted Josh Allen. Saddle <laughs> oh up. God. Saddle you- up. This cowboy from Wyoming going to take us places. I think we need to just take a deep breath and enjoy this moment. Raise a glass, sir. <sighs> God, it feels good. And now we've got this game, this friggin' game. I mean, it would only be fitting that in a year where everything seems like it's going right for us, that of all the opponents we draw, it's against the one team in the field I can't stand the most. I mean, no, and it's, it's not just because my ex, who was responsible for putting Chris and I together, was a self-proclaimed Ravens fan for no reason. You know, I was at, a, I was at JP's once with her, and you weren't there. Uh, and uh, one of my friends uh, that's in my fantasy football league was like, I guess, like kind of like hitting on her. And they were talking about football. And she did. She said to him, like, oh, yeah, I love the I love the Baltimore Ravens. And, and then as sarcastically as he as my buddy could be, he goes, oh, yeah, OK, I get it. You know, the color purple generally <laughs> aligned with the, the female population. 
Uh, I mean, admittedly, I, I listen, it's not about the team. I love Ray Lewis, and I love Ed Reed. I mean, the rest of their players over the last decade and a half can kick rocks, but those two guys were great. And no, it's not just become some just because some asshat down my street, three houses down from me, is currently flying a Ravens flag on his front porch. Apropos of nothing. Yeah. I mean, Chris, I would have seen a flag flying like that over the course of the last 17, 18 weeks, right? Yeah. So I, he thinks he's just being a contrarian, which if you're trying to be an antagonist, it's a really poor idea in a neighborhood where you live with a neighbor like me. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm... Oh. And I'm sure you don't hate the the Ravens also because of uh, last year, Jerry Coleman, and then this year, Bill Barnwell. No, it's not just because ESPN... Not because he's ESPN's Bill Barnwell's golden calf, okay? No, I, I mean, although that is... Annoying. Chris, when, when this analyst, quote-unquote, tells you that... He thinks that Josh Allen? No, he's not it. it. You know who can take your team to a Super Bowl? It's Lamar Jackson. The Bills would be a Super Bowl contender if only they could ever find themselves a Lamar Jackson. It, it becomes a little hard to swallow after a while. But no, that's not even the reason I can't stand him. The reason I can't stand him is because there's such this exotic, mercurial opponent that really forces you to rip up all of your game plans that have worked for you over the course of the season, which you've been kind of gently tweaking from one week to the next over 18 weeks of opponents, and now try to reimagine a whole new style of football. I mean, that's incredibly annoying. <laughs> it's, it, it's infuriating to watch play out year over year. And we're not the only team that struggled with it. How much anxiety do you have over that dynamic of this matchup? I don't know. It's, this is going to be a tough matchup. I don't have that much anxiety. It's a, it's going to come down to, I think, a defensive play. I mean, I have this looming feeling of dread. It grows every single day. But hopefully for myself, for you, for our listeners, this this conversation helps a little bit. And so with that, we are lucky enough to bring you one of our Chris, and I want to say one of our more analytical guests. Yes, probably one of the smarter people we get a chance to talk to on a year-to-year basis. Also, his show last year, most downloaded show we had last season. So look at that, Mr. Ken McCusick. How are you doing, sir? Life's good, guys. Good, always good to be back on the show. <laughs> I appreciate you joining us. For those of you who aren't familiar. 1057 The Fan Film Analyst, FilmStudyBaltimore.com. He has a Ravens Film Study podcast, and he they do a great job over there. I mean, for the for the amount of our listeners who also dabble in the cover one kind of universe where you're into the X's and O's of football, you really get into sports, kind of the nuances of individual teams, how the film lays out. Ken's great. His show is a phenomenal resource. I urge you to go check it out. Uh, where are you again on social just for our listeners and tell them where they can find your your shows sure at at film study ravens on twitter uh love to have you there and uh it's a great time to even a temporary join love to have you uh, you know very uh, generally speaking i think we have had exceptions that we've talked about drew but i think a, a generally a very calm and even even-headed discourse between these two fan bases that respect each other and then the other uh, question, I see the signal being made for more beers. I love the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know how we roll. 
<laughs> the, uh, if you want to visit our, our website online, it's filmstudybaltimore.com. And we, we've got uh, an offensive defense article every week. We've got podcasts of all various sorts, including some very analytic ones and some more accessible ones as well. No, I've had, I'll tell you, I've had a lot of fun trading barbs and wisecracks and jokes with uh, Baltimore Ravens fans over the course of the last season. We actually got made sort of famous because I took a shot at Bill Barnwell. And Bill Barnwell thought over, over his take on Lamar Jackson that I was just talking about. And he thought that he could publicly shame me by retweeting it with some snarky thing, putting it out there for the masses to see. And what I found is that we actually gained a whole lot of followers from the Baltimore fan base because whenever they'd come at me with some kind of insult, I'd say, okay, let's have a conversation about this. And by the end of it, we ended up realizing that we agree on more football things than we disagree. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And I still, I still have an axe to grind there with uh, Mr. Barnwell, but I digress. It's a lot of fun interacting with your fan base. Now, you're here to help us kind of prepare ourselves for what we're going to see on Saturday. And I want to start with the offense because it's easily the wonkiest part of this entire thing. It's the thing that fills me with that feeling of dread. I mean, we all know that with Lamar Jackson at the helm, Greg Roman calling plays, the Ravens offense is unorthodox compared to the way any other NFL team operates. You know, I still feel like I have to say this out loud, even if it's just for my own sanity. In a passing league, this Ravens team is the only one I've ever seen that can average 163 yards per game through the air, but score an average of 34 points per contest. I mean, if I was some kind of carnival barker running a traveling freak show, the Ravens offense would be my prize oddity because it's just that complicated and absurd. I mean, you we talked about it during my appearance on your show. You guys scored 40 points against Cleveland, and Lamar Jackson only had seven completions entering the two-minute warning. What What is this? What, can, what is this offense? Yeah, it's it's been exciting to watch for now two and a half years, and and it's morphed quite a bit during that time. The the first year uh, in 2018, uh, they played what seven games with Lamar, I guess, as the starter after nine with Flacco, and it was a lot more about Lamar personally running the ball that year. Very little about the pass. Uh, 2019, all of a sudden, Lamar was a changed man, and his his uh, demeanor, everything about the way he threw the football had been magically corrected during that offseason before 2019, and he ascended to be the league's MVP very quickly. Uh, a lot of that was just outrageously good passing numbers. I, I like The term I like that most describes how Lamar impacts opposing defense is gravitational pull, is he can move outside the pocket. He creates his own throwing lanes naturally by doing so. He never fools the edge defender on a boot, but he draws defenders to him, which is tremendously valuable, and that creates openings in that second level and sometimes the third. So uh, lots of good things happen. If you play man against him, you're, you might as well uh, drop your pants and find, try, try and play football because it's just about as easy to do because he'll, he'll outrun anybody. <laughs> and if you, if you play zone against him, he'll, he'll try and beat you with that in terms of, of getting between the levels, finding those nice, easy pitch and catch spots. See, that's one of the things that I guess I didn't have an appreciation for early on in Lamar's career until I watched Alabama this season. Now, they have a wide receiver, Devonta Smith. He's not the biggest wide receiver, and he's not the most physical wide receiver. But he's a perfect blend of physicality and height, catching ability, but this absurd speed. And I, I guess this season watching Alabama play is what gave me an appreciation for the fact that Lamar Jackson, despite not being this, 
you know, he's, he's the polar opposite in terms of Josh Allen when they leave the pocket and they start running. Allen's quick, but he's got some wiggle to him, and he kind of wins with size. I mean, we saw Darius Leonard try to lay the wood on him almost to no effect. You remember that play, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> he hit him with everything he had, and all he did was slow him down. On the other hand, when you look at Lamar Jackson, I got an appreciation for what supreme speed can do. It really is hard for some of these second-level defenders, even the fast guys, your cornerbacks, to take good angles and get to a spot fast enough to stop that guy from getting there. And when he does and he gets into the open field, I mean, that touchdown run that he had against the Titans last week, it's a perfect example of how he beat linebackers to a place in the field, made one cut, and his speed to the sideline was too fast for the safety to commit and come in and get him, and that was it. The foot race was already lost, and then it was just all over but the crying. So I've got a newfound appreciation for that aspect of Lamar's game. Now, in our show yesterday, the Rockpile Reporter Game Recap, we talked about how, while some trends do carry over from the regular season to the postseason, the playoffs really are kind of a season unto themselves. And there are some things that, some things that you think you knew, quote-unquote, about teams that just don't bear fruit. I mean, a perfect example, the Titans sacked Lamar Jackson five times last week, despite being one of the team's most anemic pass rushes, or the league's most anemic pass rushes. And the Colts finding success passing downfield against Buffalo, despite no evidence over the last month and a half that they're capable of doing that. One trend that did continue is Lamar Jackson doing that damage with his legs. But in the past, he was really hemmed in. What did the Titans do to limit Lamar through the air so effectively? Okay, well, a lot of what Jackson does to drop in the pocket really is setting up a run play a lot of the time because he leaves and scrambles so frequently. So he runs his own lineman out of pressure a lot. So a lot of the sacks, and I I don't know the total yardage on sacks in this game, but it wasn't a whole lot. They had one sack for about seven yards. I mean, all those sacks put together might have been for 15 yards or so. That tells you they're, they're shorter than normal. A lot of those are really decisions where other quarterbacks would just throw the ball away. And Jackson said, well, maybe I can make a run out of this. And it's almost always a good gamble for him to decide that. And if he does and he gets outside the pocket, well, then it could be 20, 30 yards. Those don't get juxtaposed to those sack numbers for most people who aren't really caring to watch that. Last year, Lamar Jackson, when you combine these two elements, the sacks and the yards lost, 23 for 106, combine those with his scrambles and yards gained, you get what I call the forced not to throw uh, or forced not to pass or FNTP number. That number for Lamar Jackson is one of the highest in NFL history. Probably was the highest, although I have not checked them all, at over five yards per time. So that includes his sacks and his scrambles. He gained an average of more than five yards. Uh, so he's making a good gamble, generally speaking, when he he holds onto the football and decides, okay, I'm going to try and I, I try and run it. So I I don't really get concerned about about him giving up a few sacks in some games where the defense is doing a pretty good job of of maintaining disciplined rush rush lanes. It happens. It's just not that big a deal. And uh, he did give up a few more total sacks this year, which again I think is more of a decision not to throw as opposed to a uh, he is no way he could have unloaded the football and and taken a zero on the play. Okay. So against the Titans, we watched them kind of, he had a couple downfield attempts and they didn't all go well. There was the one where he floated the ball. And I think that kind of fits a narrative that started to develop about Lamar is that we watched Josh Allen throw the ball and he's got that cannon for an arm and you can watch him throw an out route 30 yards downfield and he can do it with accuracy. 
Whereas Lamar, over the course of the last three seasons, we've watched him, when he's asked to throw to those areas of the field more than 10, 15 yards downfield, it can kind of, it can sail on him sometimes. And I don't know if that's mechanics. I don't know if it's just him. He, he thinks his receivers are going to do one thing and they do another. The, the interception he threw in that game, he kind of floated it to the inside where he needed to break the ball outside to the sideline. I don't see him making a ton of those types of mistakes. So when he does struggle or when he, or when he has been baited into turnovers, what, what would you point the finger at and say, here's the cause of it, or this is what the opposing defense did to fool Lamar Jackson? Lamar's at his best when he is out throwing the defense. And, and what I say that is throwing to a spot where the defense isn't. He's, he's, when he's very careful about that. That's how he beats zones is just to put the ball at a place where the defense isn't. Where he's not as good at is outside the numbers and deep. And we really saw it on the throw to Boykin that was intercepted that he kind of floated out there. By the way, that's been an ongoing problem with Boykin that he, from Lamar's perspective, he may not like about this is that he he wants to be able to trust Boykin to prevent those sort of interceptions. And that was one where Boykin didn't stop quickly enough on the ball, realize the track was off, come back and, you know, rip the guy in two to make sure that interception didn't happen. Uh, you know, he's a much bigger physical guy than anybody who could have been covering him. So it, it, there wouldn't have been any excuse for not being able to do it. Uh, it's just a, a case where, uh, you know, Jackson badly underthrew the ball and, and he didn't get any help doing it. Last year in the playoffs against the Titans, you know, and, and during the regular season as well, a lot of his throws to Andrews have been bounces off uh, him that have, have led to interceptions. That's been a, a regular recurring theme, not as much this year. Uh, he's made some bad decisions throwing down the middle of the field deep this year that have led to a couple of interceptions. I'm thinking back to one uh, in particular. It, it's been a variety of things. It, 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 he, tw- twice, this is weird, but twice he's been interception throwing up on three passes, throwing a slant to James Prochet. So I don't know what's exactly given that away, but Prochet's only had three targets the whole year as a rookie, and two of them have been intercepted. Oh, and no. uh, it's, 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 there might be something as a receiver he's giving away in that, but uh, – but anyway, it's it's a variety of things that cause the interceptions. Field vision has been very good. And the thing that the, the remarkable thing about Lamar is the lack of interceptions in the red zone. And I forget if the number is now 45 and 0 or if it's now higher, but he has the most ever touchdown passes without an interception to start his career. And if you, if you, you watch Lamar Jackson play, it's very obvious why that's happening. His red zone uh, MO is to move left to right and back until he finds a direct line to throw to a receiver. He does not throw these fades, not a lot of zipper balls, tall balls to get the ball uh, high in the back of the end zone. And that really reduces a lot of the interception risk. So um, also a lot of the deflection risk, which, which causes interceptions at the line of scrimmage. So he's been exceptional at that. Creating extended pockets in close has been something that's where he's been effective cutting down on his picks. See, I'm just curious because I'm thinking I'm going Jordan Poyer during a recent interview with friend of the show, Eric Turner from over at Cover One. He pointed out that two concepts in particular when when asked about the fact that Philip Rivers had a surprising passing performance against our defense because for the last month we've been squatting on passing offenses. Two concepts in particular, the drive and the mesh concepts that Rivers, with this kind of a savvy, it's a combination of veteran savvy, accuracy, and just his upper echelon abilities to read coverages, which I think just comes with, what, 16, 17 years of NFL experience, to know when he could exploit the middle of the field using his tight ends and wide receivers and manipulating those guys with his eyes. 
This was the first time in a month someone had had this kind of success against our defense, and it came on the back of a very veteran quarterback and some pretty dynamic passing concepts, both drive concepts and mesh, which anybody who's watched uh, Brett Coleman has, if you haven't, Brett Coleman over at the Film Room on YouTube has a great full-scale 20-minute breakdown as to what the mesh concept is and how um, how it was created, how it came from college to the NFL, and how some teams use it to their advantage. It makes zone defenders have to make tough choices, and it leaves the quarterback with a lot of available options to make positive plays. But outside of those kind of complicated concepts, the Bills have done really well to shut down passing offenses. What do you think in terms of the matchup of Lamar Jackson as a passer? I mean, we know what we're going to get from him as a runner, but him as a passer against our secondary, how confident are you in him winning that matchup? I'm not super confident ever in Lamar winning that matchup. To win that matchup, he's got to win the run matchup. The Ravens have to have enough misdirection in their offense to force the Bills to play defense like they don't normally play defense. And that's what he's been very successful at doing with other teams. But it doesn't mean that the Bills will will do it. Last December's game, the big big – I don't think it was the normal Bills defense to come up with their furthest safety, what, four yards from the line of scrimmage on the touchdown pass to Hayden Hurst. And that was just a very simple crossing pattern. Hurst got behind, and then all of a sudden Hurst was faster than the safety, and and it's a touchdown. It's it's. Uh, I don't know who blew the assignment on that play, by the way, or if it was even a blown assignment, oh, just some sort of cover it, zero look. That no, it absolutely to. was. It was Jordan Poyer, and he took he took responsibility for it. In fact, he talked about it this week that he still remembers blowing that assignment because he was supposed to be the single high, and he got cocky and came down in the box because he was so certain that it was going to be a run play. And then he thought, even if it's not, I think I can get back. And he got caught peeking into the backfield, and there was just he couldn't make up the space. Mm-hmm. So, well, the other the other thing you'll see, and this is something that that you remember also from the December game, try and keep it to Bills games. But Lamar Jackson had that astounding shot put touchdown pass to Boyle early yep. in the first half, where he basically ran across the line of scrimmage. The gravitational pull was in effect, and he just shot-putted the ball over some other defenders there, and Boyle made a very difficult grab on it, but, you know, bobbled it about three times, but, uh, but it, was a, <laughs> uh, it was an exciting play, and, and that's the kind of effect he has on defenses uh, in general. He has to lean on that, and he has to be uh, very comfortable moving around a pocket that's amorphous, and, and it keeps him... Uh, uh, able to make good decisions in terms of, of taking care of the football relative to those defenders. So it sounds an awful lot like this defense is going to have to find a way to keep him in check while also trying to be assignment sound, which really is, that's the crux of what this offense can accomplish. It just puts unorthodox pressure on you to do things that you're not used to having to do. There's one anomaly here statistically that I want to pick your brain about. When I look at, and I'd like to know if you know offhand or if you've ever given this any thought as to what teams have been able to do over the course of this season and also the Titans last week in terms of limiting the Ravens' ability to generate yak. I mean, here's what I see. I see our our wide receiver, slot receiver, Cole Beasley, has 352 yards after the catch. There isn't a single Baltimore target out there, not, not a single wide receiver, running back, tight end, who has more than 200 besides Hollywood Brown. Mm-hmm. What is it that you think about his passing style that leads to that? I mean, it just seems like it's very much like when he throws the ball, there really isn't, unless you're Hollywood Brown on the outside or running on a deep route, there really isn't much place for you to go. I think the basic concept here is zone reduces yak. 
So zone defense, you know, puts you behind the receiver and in a position to come up and make a tackle, whereas man defense potentially gets you burned and, and you can give up the big yak plays on those man plays. I don't think it's much more complicated than that. And, but, you know, maybe we should look at that kind of a thing. That'd be the first place that I'd check it. Uh, you know, looking at the hypothesis, you know, how have teams that play the most zone done in terms of opposition yak? That's actually a really good idea. Chris, mark that down. Off-season project. <laughs> All right. Got it. Now, rushing attack. When you guys do run the ball, because Lamar Jackson isn't the whole offense, but your rushing attack in 2020 took a step back. I mean, in 2019, you guys were the, you were a dominant rushing team, and you still are. But it was that run game that, and it, it still is to a degree, the, the straw that stirs the drink for you offensively. But then to a degree that it inevitably became the Achilles heel, and when it failed you guys against the Titans last year, it led to just another first-round exit. This year, Lamar Jackson's the only 1,000-yard rusher on your roster, while Ingram, who last year was a, he was viewed as a prize UFA signing, has kind of languished. In, he hasn't really played much. He hasn't been that effective. His overall yardage, I mean, he's far below Gus Edwards and J.K. Dobbins. So when I look at what these running backs are at this point, I mean, I saw that um, Ingram was inactive last week against the Titans. He wasn't. He was a non-factor at all. So between Gus Edwards and J.K. Dobbins, are these guys used interchangeably, or do they each have a specific fit for what the offense is trying to do when they're on the field? Very, very specifically used. So first of all, it, it, let's let's talk about Ingram. First of all, he's only had uh, what do we got now? Twenty-two carries. He did have nine against Cincinnati since week six. He's been basically hurt. Off the off the roster five times uh, when he's been on the roster he really hasn't carried the ball very much but uh, that's obviously not a lot of a lot of action as soon as they drafted J.K. Dobbins I think the plan was switch from Ingram to Dobbins so I think I, I think that pretty much explains that the Ravens have changed their run style this year from being a predominantly pistol team which forces Jackson to make a lot of the outside run reads as opposed to a sidecar team where Dobbins is usually the guy next to um, uh, Jackson in the pistol. And then then he becomes an outside threat. Jackson actually becomes a threat to run up the middle or run in the opposite direction. And they've been adding a third wrinkle lately that they usually have a jet motion guy. So they're actually really threatening the field three different ways on the same run play. So I've been loving that. The other big wrinkle you'll see in the run game is that this they've done more than more than is imaginable right now, but they run counter a ridiculous amount of times. And I have my, my offensive line scoring chart from this last game to tell you just how many times, but they had a double pull from left guard or left tackle. It's going to take me a second here, guys. No, take your time because this is 14 times okay. in the game. I mean, it's, it's just absurd. And, and it doesn't always create a great blocking opportunity for in particular the left tackle who kind of has the second choice on who to block on the pole because he's the second through the through the funnel if you want to think of it that way but it, it what it creates is it forces the defense to try and decide how they're going to react to the fact that these two guys are pulling and Jackson can pass out of it and he can usually run in two different directions out of it so they've they've done a lot of it in terms of uh 
done a lot with that in terms of trying to get defenses off balance. It's not not even really that they're trying to get those guys to get a block. It's that they're almost like selling a fake or, or, or creating another option to run the ball that may create an overload somewhere. So that's been entertaining to watch, and it's been a, a very new and heavily used wrinkle about the last six weeks. So uh, one of the big things that's gotten the offense turned around during that time. Do, do they ever throw to the jet motion player? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they, they throw to him. They throw to jet motion. They, they throw to the um, – Ravens use a ridiculous amount of their motion on tight ends and the fullback Ricard. So they, a very high percentage used on, on that. And that player in particular, Patrick Ricard, has become a part of the offense, including three receptions on the touchdown drive right after the half. Where they just threw wide to him and, and uh, got a couple first downs, and, and he really fueled that drive. Uh, they throw the jet motion guy in particular when it's Duvernay. Um, probably more, and he's much more dangerous in that role. Uh, so they've got various things they can do. What they don't really do very often, I would like them to maybe try to do more, is run a true RPO all the way into the mesh, then a pass. That that would really bite, have some additional linebacker biting on it, I think, and create some opportunity. But the, the, they did it three times in all of 2019, and – it was 23-yard gain in the opener, 47-yard touchdown in the opener, and then one more time for an incomplete pass in week five. And they didn't otherwise uh, run, the, run the play at well, all year. They it could be one of those things that we talk about the playoffs and how teams pull stuff out of their hats. I mean, the Ravens certainly remember Bill Belichick playing the shell game on the offensive line yeah. with his wide receiver. You sit on things and you save them for a moment where you think you need them. That could be another concept we see rear its head here. Now, when you think about what our defensive makeup is here as Buffalo, do you see these concepts that you guys plan on running and knowing the talent that we have on our side of the fence how do you – I mean, clearly, obviously, that that's a system that's built to pressure the defense in five different ways and hope that they can't execute all five of them. You, That's clearly got to be a matchup you see favoring the Baltimore Ravens, right? I think, you know, I'd go back to some fundamentals as being one of the real possibilities for favoritism. I don't I, – for a, for a advantage to be gained. I'm not sure it would be – that directly is how do you take advantage of moving somebody? I, I just don't know who it would be. Let me put it that way. In terms of, of the basic ability to tackle, I think the, the Bills have some serious questions. I think the Ravens have them too, by the way. So I'm not just pointing, pointing this out with the Bills, but AJ Klein in particular, we talked about a little bit on the show, has one yeah. of the highest missed tackle rates in the league. You said he hasn't missed a tackle in several weeks, but that missed tackle rate. <laughs> but it's out there. <laughs> he's, he's proven that he can be a liability at times to the Chris. Uh, to the point where, uh, how about this? I've got a friend at work who feels the same way I feel about AJ Klein. Uh, he's gone on some similar booze-fueled rants about his performance over the first half of the season. And as a joke, his friends got together and bought him an AJ Klein jersey. I mean, these are the. <laughs> I mean, we. There's a lot of vitriol towards that guy, and he kind of washed some of that away. But to your point, the Bills missed tackles in the last game against Indy. They, they've missed tackles over the course of the season. We're one of the, I think, in the top 10 or maybe even the top five in the NFL at this point for missed tackles. So it's certainly something to keep an eye on because this is an offense that you have to be so assignment sound. And when you get an opportunity to make that play, you have to make it. Yeah, you don't want anything to happen to uh, Matt Milano like last year in the Ravens game. That missed tackle on Lamar Jackson. Mm. That's it. That's exactly where Matt Milano might be our most consistent linebacker. I mean, we talked about his performance with Greg Thompson last week. 
he's he's electric when he's on, but if you can make him miss, he's just as susceptible as anybody else. And if he if he's missing tackles, God help you with the rest of the guys. <laughs> so let's flip sides of the ball here. Let's talk a little bit about defense. The front seven. Another year, another fantastic Ravens front seven. I mean, it literally is like wash, rinse, and repeat. Do you guys change scheme from one season to the next, or is it predominantly just... I mean, because I know at one point I feel like you guys lost your defensive coordinator, and then whoever came... What is it? Um, Wink Martindale? Mm-hmm. So Martindale came in, and it seemed... It's just your defense, even down to who the coordinator is, doesn't seem to matter. It's this... It's the same animal one year to the next. How do you guys maintain that continuity? Well, it's it's changed a lot between Martindale and Pease before him. So Pease was the defensive coordinator for six years, and I characterized his tenure as being one who was very much afraid to put the dime defense on the field. And for five years, the Ravens only played 3% dime and quarter snaps, so 3% snaps with six or seven defensive backs. That really forced him into situations where they had linebackers on the field, weak in coverage, you know, create a lot of weakness. A lot of, I think the reason that Dean Pease didn't want to have a guy on third down is that then the offense can run no huddle on first down. And that's just not relatively weighting those plays. Yeah. Efficiently. Cause I mean, that third down is worth a lot more than that first down play and giving up, you know, six versus four yards, let's say on a, on a, on a first down, it's just not as big a deal as getting an extra 10% chance, say to get them off the field on third down by having a decent time back in there. So, the so- last year of Pease, he went to Anthony Levine, um, at, at dime. Levine was good that year. The next year, he had the best year ever by a, by a Ravens dime in 2018. 2019, uh, Chuck Clark took the role. The Ravens played 42.1% dime for the year, and he was the heart and soul of defense in any meaningful way. He became the signal caller. He took over entirely in the middle of that defense, uh, played dime back on passing downs, strong safety on other downs. Uh, he's capable of playing free safety, but he's not really a back-end cover guy that you want. He's more of a I need to be where I need to be within the box somewhere and really took care of the communication element on the defense, which had been lagging before he got there. So that was a, that was a breakdown. Um, the other thing that's very different about the Martindale defense, aside from the, the greater use of dime prior to this year was that they use a tremendous amount of scheme to generate pass rush more than any other Ravens coordinator back to Rex Ryan. Uh, lots of off ball blitzes. Uh, I count those a lot of uh, simulated pressure, and a lot of stunts and twists. So all kinds of different games are being played to generate pressure, and it's largely a function of not really having a single elite pass rusher. But what they do have is two elite Sam linebackers, either one of which can seamlessly drop to cover, who are probably the best two cover linebackers on the entire team. Bowser, I would say, outside, at outside linebacker, is probably the best cover linebacker in the on the outside in the entire NFL. And he's one of the better cover linebackers, period, even with the three-down unicorns that are around the league. Uh, and he's had three picks this year. He's looked really good when he's dropped to cover. They use him a lot in that. Uh, Judon, also a great cover guy, uh, also has some of that quickness you like to take advantage of the stunts and the games they play. So the Ravens don't have an elite pass rusher by any stretch, but they've made do with what they have and got a decent sack total by by uh, basically exploiting uh, weaknesses they can probe out by stunt, by blitz, and by simulated pressure. Well, and that's what I, lo- I wanted to pick your brain about because your group has the highest, Chris, we're about to play the team with the highest blitz rate in the NFL, okay? They blitz more often than any team in football. 290 attempts, making up 45% of all their snaps on defense. But they have just one more sack than the Buffalo Bills. 
Just one. Now they force pressure. They get some quarterback hits. But that's something you've watched Josh Allen deal with pretty pretty well this season, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can it, to outline it for you, I mean, because it sounds like a lot of your pass rush is predicated on these heavy blitz looks. Josh Allen has the third best QBR against the blitz. And that, that I think, jumps to second if it's versus man cover. So when he gets blitzed and he gets pressured, he has an idea of where it's coming from now. It's something he's matured with. It's something he's grown into. And this season, you've watched him and Dable work together to dial up on the fly blitz beaters. He's got, uh, I think, one of the most famous examples of that. There was a play in the Seattle Seahawks game where you watch them march everyone to the line. They, they bring the whole front seven into the line and show pressure. And he calls a tunnel screen. And it goes 50, 51 yards for a touchdown. Be- on a simple screen pass. Because he sees it. He knows what he's looking at. And he says, okay, I'm not even going to give you guys the time for this. I'm, I'm going to option to a play that I know you can't stop. And we'll see what happens. Is there any concern that this blitz-heavy approach against a quarterback like Josh Allen that's so good at beating the blitz might might cause you guys to have to back off a little bit. Oh, I, I, first of all, one of the things about Martindale, extraordinarily opponent-dependent game plan. Extraordinarily. I'm going to give you some numbers from recent weeks in terms of the off-ball blitzes. And a lot of times, there's multiple components to this, but I really dislike the way they've grouped five-plus-man rushes as blitzes. It's Yes, it's a commitment of personnel, but there's not even agreement on who is involved as a blitzer. I just looked at my numbers. I have 276. You had 290 or something, which probably means players who are – uh, who rush the quarterback after the quarterback breaks the pocket are included in that. So it could you know, be. We, we don't even have a, a consistent definition of that not not really my complaint. But what the what the difference is is that the Ravens will blitz if it's appropriate to do so and will not blitz if it's not appropriate to do so. And against the Titans, they only had six off ball blitzes in the entire game against the Giants and a team a quarterback who you know, was susceptible to throwing the ball uh, to uh, uh, holding the football a little bit too long with Daniel Jones. They had 34 off ball <laughs> blitzes. And in, in, in fact, in that, fr- in that game against the Giants at through halftime, they'd, they'd allow the Giants to pass 13 times. They had all given up 11, three second pockets which is just extraordinary, by the way. Three-second pocket, which is my standard, is much worse than the two-and-a-half-second standard, which a lot of other systems use. Uh, I call that ample time and space. But anyway, the, the, uh, they've given up 11 out of 13, had got zero pressures in the first half. Martindale just changed in the second half, says, okay, we're going to blitz numbers, and they got home with 18 pressures in the second half. So uh, he, he knows how to really change a game plan to make it appropriate to the opponent. I, I'm not at all concerned about the okay. Ravens' ability to scheme properly for Allen. So then this brings me back to something we talked about during my appearance on your show. If you guys aren't going to do off-the-ball blitzing <laughs> – the middle of the field in terms of pass protection, yeah. someplace that Josh Allen has been able to just absolutely destroy offenses this season. You, know, you see a lot of deep posts, a lot of deep uh, crosses. You see Gabe Davis doing a lot of things in the almost like a big tight end, working against linebackers and against um, against DBs in the middle of the field and safeties, who he just he towers over. He's too physically imposing for them to box out. That linebacker group and that safety group, if you guys are not committing off the ball blitzers from those parts of the field, how set are you on their coverage abilities? No, that's that's the White Ravens' biggest weakness by far defensively. So you've, you've hit on it exactly, is their linebackers really can't cover. 
And it's it's a mix of things. Queen has a has had responsibility problems this year. What was in terms the, of no? What was what, the uh, what was the example you gave? What was it the uh, his the analogy? I, I, I'll, I'll say it if you want. <laughs> the analogy yeah, that you use. It's as soon as a as soon as a player's behind him, it's like he doesn't exist anymore from a coverage <laughs> standpoint. So basically, uh, Ferkser, who's not a particularly fast guy, Queen could keep up with him in terms of speed that wouldn't wouldn't be an issue and he's the proper size to cover him and whatnot but Ferkser literally took a step behind him and all of a sudden he's, he's lost to queen and queen must think that the stadium's disintegration ray has taken care of him and taken him out of play but in, in point of fact of course then he just immediately cut behind queen took the ball i think five yards from the line of scrimmage and it was four and, and had a four plus 31 pass play so uh it can get ugly when those guys are involved chris board is the other one they bring him on third down he used to play safety in college he has no concepts of routes going on behind him <laughs> so he can cover a guy man off the line of scrimmage he can cover and get to a line or a running back who's being used as an outlet recognition skills are not always the best with that either but he could do those two downhill things when it comes to covering a guy uh or, or trying to figure out who the quarterback is trying to throw to where the route combination said he probably should have read off the line of scrimmage. He's got no idea what's going on at the, the middle of the field. It might as well have nobody standing there. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Don't you? Yeah. That makes me feel a little bit better about this. So on the outside, because obviously you, you can't just use the middle of the field because that's a sucker's bet. That's right. one of the most dangerous areas of the field to throw into. I, I've seen things lately where people tweeting and obviously Twitter's a poor I'd, it's a poor place to go if you want nuanced football discussion because what you're going to get is someone like yourself who would point out well Lamar Jackson hasn't utilized the middle of the field because reasons X and reasons Y and reasons Z and then you're going to get 500 people who go Lamar Jackson sucks Lamar Jackson sucks with an X and an exclamation point and some emojis slapped at the end of it and that's about the, the, it's about the extent of what you're going to get there 280 characters, also a very frustrating limit in terms of responding to anything in a meaningful way on, on Twitter. Oh, it's the worst method of human communication, which is why I think it's hysterical that so many people think that it's appropriate to use for, th- for anything of any kind of gravity. Or if you're going to try to display any sort of intelligence, it's a really hard thing to utilize. But so when you think about that, it's a dangerous place. And if Lamar Jackson isn't going to use it, there's a reason he's trying to use it is because this is where you can get in trouble. As he found out last week when sometimes it's not even your fault. It is, but then somebody else also makes a mistake and it blows up in your face and everyone's pointing the finger at you. We're going to have to attack the other parts of this parts of this defense, Chris. We're going to have to throw this ball. I mean, rushing... I'm not even going to ask any questions about the rush defense because I don't think it matters. We're missing Zach Moss. No one knows what this team can do in non-inclement weather. Now you're talking about a game where you're going to have to throw the ball. It's the strength of our offense. It's where all of our playmakers reside. And then I look at the, the overall secondary of this Ravens team. They've spent portions of the season beat up, but it's fairly healthy. And to me... You guys have a collection. I don't think I'm blowing smoke here. I'm not trying to kiss your ass, Ken. You guys have, in my opinion, probably the best collection of cornerback talent, definitely in the AFC, maybe the NFL. I mean, I, I, I think of, in terms of healthy bodies of who's left right now, I don't think there's any doubt that the, the five guys the Ravens have can contribute more as a group to, to pass coverage than anybody else. And that's why I think they're a pretty good matchup for the Bills because they're, they're one of the few teams who can have their fourth guy be pretty good. And it'd be, you know, Smith and Averett would be the fourth guys, and they're both pretty good, um, who would be 
on the field to defend 10 personnel. And they can line up a four cornerback dime to do that, where a lot of other teams can't. The team that did it to the Ravens early in the year, the Pittsburgh Steelers, when the Ravens were not healthy, they had Terrell Bonds as their fourth guy, and Roethlisberger ruthlessly picked on him. And it wasn't like it was more than a bunch of pinpricks, but it was a bunch of 7- to 12-yard passes and a pass interference penalty that fueled the two touchdown drives they had to come back in the second half. So you know, it's, the Ravens, they, they need to be able to have the proper depth at corner, not get anybody hurt in this game. Uh, and they have five guys who I think they can get four on the field for. My problem isn't there. My problem is that inside linebacker. And if they want to leave one on third down, they may as well, you know, be playing with their pants down again. It's just a, it's uh, they have J. Ron Curse available as a third safety. Uh, they haven't activated him yet, but this could be the game that, that it would make a lot of sense to get a guy on the field who really has some idea of route combinations behind him. Now, I, I, I'm interested in this because I watched the Cleveland. I watched your the game on Monday Night Football because it had implications for Buffalo. I watched that game intently where you guys went into Cleveland. And Cleveland is kind of an interesting beast because they do have a dominant rushing attack. I mean, your, yours is nothing to sneeze at, and it's mostly scheme-driven. Whereas I think that the rushing attack of the Browns is just a product of the fact that they have two of the NFL's best rushers over the last five years running out of the same stable. Now, well, I don't know if Hunt's a great rusher anymore, but they definitely have the best offensive line. They, so well, you start you start with that. Yeah. So when I watched that game and I watched the passing yardage that Baker Mayfield was able to manufacture, considering he's throwing to uh, he's got one really solid wide receiver. He's got a really good t- two really good tight ends. And Joku's not he's been kind of faded in their offense, but I, I don't think he's a slouch. I watched him put up what, four hundred and over four hundred yards. And so when I look at that and I think to myself, okay, these good cornerbacks, I know you at the time you guys weren't completely healthy as you are now. So to your point, maybe depth plays a little bit of an issue. But this is what I see. I see them using some dubiously talented players to still find ways to scheme up scheme guys open. And so then I take a look at the Buffalo Bills and I say, okay, so there's you can scheme against the Ravens secondary a little bit. And for as talented and as deep as they are, this might be the deepest and most talented wide receiver core. You guys have come up against all season. Absolutely. You you guys have a three, four, five. We have a three, four, five. We have a three who almost had a thousand yards. We have a four who, as a rookie, has seven touchdowns. We have a five who leads the NFL in the percentage of snaps that he spends in motion, and he's a gadget piece for this offense. And Chris hates him, <laughs> despises Isaiah McKenzie. Yeah, Ken, I don't know if you if you <laughs> paid attention a lot to the stats of our game last week, but, I mean, McKenzie basically went off. No rushes, no rushing yards, no targets, no receptions. He was basically useless. But in in week 17, when the team said, hey, we're going to sit some people, we're going to be missing our our, our number three receiver, so let's bring in Isaiah McKenzie and have him play that role. He had two touchdowns against the NFL's best pass defense. He had two two touchdowns, a punt, uh, punt return for a touchdown, his stats were incredible. Yeah, not impressed. He's a useful piece, <laughs> and I think that he's something that Dable can use as eye candy to throw out there and really confuse people. Now, what I noticed is Baltimore, when you played Tennessee last week, you guys did a great job shutting them down. I mean, A.J. Brown, Corey Davis, in that matchup, outside of Corey Davis leaves, he only gets two targets, he has no catches. A.J. Brown gets 
more than 70% of his total yardage for the game on the very first drive. And after that, you took him away. And the rest of their wide receiver options are not only kind of dubious in terms of talent, but also they didn't really get many targets. I think it was five targets to anybody not named A.J. Brown. They really tried to tight end and running back you guys to death, and you ate them alive on that. It's how you were able to hold them after their 10-point lead to just one field goal throughout the rest of the game. This wide receiver group, you're not going to be able to keep them quiet for as long as you did that group. I mean, I guess, and we talked about Dawson Knox. I mean, the transformer, you know, his hands of Teflon, they turn into, they turn into, uh, Kelfon pans and things just slide off of them. I guess the question is, is that how do you see on the boundaries you guys are going to try to compete with Diggs? That's the first question. How do you foresee this defense trying to deal with an elite wide receiver talent like Stephon Diggs? Well, they, they don't generally. Uh, follow so Peters okay. is a full time left cornerback. When they're in the nickel, they have Smith as a full time right cornerback in that spot, and Humphrey has been the guy who's had to play the slot, even though his natural place is on the outside. Uh, the Ravens have exceptional boundary defenders. Peters is a great gambler uh, who has been very good about undercutting routes, taking chances to get picks. Uh, we in remember, his career. we remember Marcus Peters chugging a beer in our friggin' stadium. Chugging a beer in our faces as he swats that pass away from John Brown. <laughs> from John, John Brown. Brown. Yeah. Well, on the, on the uh, uh, you know, the, the Ravens have very good boundary corners, and they should. They have aircraft carrier size, as I call it. Most of their guys are six one and up in terms of their outside guys. Humphrey is too big to play the slot. Extraordinarily physical. Doesn't have the great change of direction skills. That's where I'd be a little concerned about things not going the Ravens' way as they get beat on some whip routes and some uh, other underneath routes. Isaiah McKenzie, dangerous receiver. The first thing I look at is the catch rate, the 30 out of 34. I mean, you guys have three guys over 76.5% catch rate. That's extraordinary. There's, there's very few – I don't think there's another team in the NFL that has it, but, the, but the, uh, you know, that kind of catch rate you just don't see very often ever and individually. And, and the Ravens are going to be very challenged to do it. But I think one of the things that's helped keep those catch rates high is that Allen has been adept at picking on the weakest link of the opponent. And, and I would have described the Bills offense as more throwing to digs because they always throw to him no matter who's covering him and throwing to the weakest link otherwise uh, as being the good second option. So, you know, if the Ravens are better suited to take care of the weakest link component of that formula than they are. Uh, to take care of Diggs. I don't think there's there's anything special the Ravens have that they can offer up that makes them better to contain Diggs. If you were Brian Dable, how would you use our weapons to attack your defense? I'd pepper the middle of the field. I'd definitely make sure the linebackers had coverage responsibility whenever possible. I'd you know it's the biggest weakness area. It's just it's a it's if you understood just how constant the frustration is with that area of the field for the Ravens and and you know that they spent two draft picks and a very large portion of their total draft capital with a one and a three at inside linebacker. And those guys just have not produced much in terms of value as in pass coverage. Really very little. They've got another guy who's now in his fourth year with the team, third year, fourth year, third or fourth year. Chris Board is who I'm talking about, who, who plays as the um, third safety effectively even though he's really a linebacker, so he's a proxy dime. And he hasn't really been any good either uh, in terms of anything but a, very much a downhill look on a, on a pass play. 
if you understood what the frustration was, you'd understood. I know how, exactly how weak that area is. And I, I just I would cross crisscross it continually. Bunch formations worked well against the Ravens early in the year from both the Chiefs and Pittsburgh. So those are those are uh, formations that seem to work. Uh, I mean, I think with those two things, you can do it. Weather could be, I guess, a factor. Uh, you know, you and I talked a little bit about who that really favors. The more I think about it, the more I think, you know, this is a weather game that probably does favor the Ravens some because I think it would give them some opportunity to uh, reduce Allen's accuracy when his players are open. Uh, I think it also will reduce Jackson's effectiveness as a runner to have pass options taken away from him as well. So it's not as clear, but but I think probably if I had to say on net, that would be the that would be the impact. How confident? I know I'd asked you about players you saw performing, but instead I'm just going to close this conversation with a question. How confident are you that your Ravens are going to be playing in the AFC title game? Uh, not. I think it's less than a 50% chance given where this game is. Uh, the, the Bills, I think, have very specific uh, adaptability to their own environment that the Ravens probably don't have. Jackson, coming from the South, uh, hasn't made it obvious that he's a great cold-weather quarterback, including two playoff losses prior to Tennessee. Um, it, it's, it's, didn't he also it lose truly a game is earlier, a toss-up game. Didn't he also lose a game in really some really nasty weather up in New England earlier this year? Yeah, so that was a heavy rainstorm. They they won three times in the rain last year. So at Seattle, uh, at home okay. in San Francisco, so he's had big big offsetting wins in rain. Uh, it's it's really cold weather that I'm a little bit more concerned about. And I don't know why I am because the Ravens have you know won their December games certainly. Uh, it's just a matter of having games in the same way with with harsher weather, higher wind, and whatnot that might be present in Buffalo. Ken. Is that the kind of pithy answer you wanted? <laughs> Ken. How can I put it on here? <laughs> no, Ken, I love it. And this is why we love you. This is why our listeners show up every time you're on this show. Because you bring this nuanced, professional tone. You're well-researched. You're clearly well-read. And you're obviously smarter than Chris or I. So <laughs> our listeners get it. It's like a breath of fresh air from what they're used to. Ken, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find more of your work, whether it's your website, your podcast, your social media. Once again, give them a little refresher. Sure. At Film Study Ravens on Twitter. Love to have you as a follower. All kinds of good discussions going on every day. And FilmStudyBaltimore.com is the site. Got some good graphical content now and real good podcast content. That You know, what? one thing we talked about on the show, Drew, was how good it is to pick like one podcast from an opposing team that you kind of like and build up your stable of podcast people, and in particular, your set of Twitter followers, so that you have a trusted source of information across the league. And I've tried to do that uh, around the league to find people I like. And Drew's my Bills guy. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I hope you guys are enjoying the shows this week, but I got to tell you guys about Blue Wire Hustle. It's a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast right here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. Also, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get in on all of this for only $15 a month. That's the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for an initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your applications in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. That's bwhustle.com slash join. Ken McCusick, he's on Twitter at Film Study Ravens. And for me, best conversation we've had all year Solely based on that man's audio quality. <laughs> audio quality was was amazing. I love Ken because he's such a he's such a. Stunning. I don't know why he comes on our show. We're just <laughs> we're just season ticket holders. We're peasants. Yeah, we're, we're peasants compared we're peasants. to him. Yeah. You know why, Chris? It's for it's it's certainly not for our good looks. I'll tell you that. It's got to no. be our sparkling personalities. You have the personality. I have the good looks. I have no personality <laughs> at all. Oh, my God. All right. So now we sit back and we digest that entire conversation. You wonder how are the Bills going to pull this thing off? Why is Ken not feeling great about this outside of the weather? Well, I'm going to hit you guys with this week's keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. Let me ask you this. Is Isaiah McKenzie on it? He is indeed, sir. Oh, God. Crack a fresh one, folks. Strap in. He didn't do anything last week. We start things off with AJ Klein. Now, I know it's crazy to think. The guy that I once said that I trusted less than Chris with a butterfly net in pass coverage, who saw just three snaps against the Colts on defense, is to my eyes going to work in tandem with Matt Milano to make a difference in this game. Why do I think that? Last year before our matchup with Baltimore, I sat here on this podcast and talked about how I felt Sam linebacker Lorenzo Alexander was a liability, and I worried what their plan for him was considering his limitations in coverage. He went on to have one of his most prominent games in a Bills uniform, maybe best game ever in that contest, and at some points individually was responsible for stabilizing our front seven against the heavy run sets that Baltimore was throwing out there. He even provided some pass rush. That need hasn't changed here, entering this contest with Baltimore, who really remains unchanged in their identity. I mean, Saturday night, we're going to need to see the same level of execution from Klein. I have a chart here. And when you look at the personnel groupings that the Ravens like to use, 
49% of their snaps, they run out of three wide receiver sets. And out of those, they typically pass. But they use a lot of pistol formation and they run around. 42% of their snaps come out of formations with just two wide receivers on the field and two tight ends, and they load up the line of scrimmage. Also, interestingly, when they have just two wide receivers on the field, I mean, Chris, the chart that I have in front of you, how is it broken out? It's the uh, grouping type, your snap percentage, and then uh, run and pass percentages. When they have just two wide receivers on the field, they run at a rate almost double the rate that they throw. Yeah. Th- that's it. That, that tells you everything you need to know about the makeup of their offense. And even in their most prominent formation, that spread personnel with three wide receivers, they run the ball at least a third of the time, if not 40% of the time. Usually is an attempt to take advantage of nickel defenses that lack the beef up front to stop them. I like our linebackers, but the three... <sighs> The, the one who see of the three, the, the one who gets the least usage is Klein. This team is going to force him to be on the field more Saturday than he's played, what, I think since the Chargers game. He played 100% of the snaps in that game, and then last week he disappeared. He wasn't a part of the Bills' game plan against the Colts. He's going to have to be out there, and we're going to need him to be sharp and focused on the RPO elements of the Baltimore offense to help that defensive line generate some kind of push if we're going to have a shot at this thing. The second key, wide receivers number three, four, and five. This defensive back group might be one of the best in the AFC from a pure talent standpoint. And yet in games against Cleveland and Dallas, they allowed 888, what is it, 881 yards through the air. A lot of that is them being strong on the outside, but giving up a ton in the middle of the field. And according to Ken, both on my appearance on his show and earlier tonight as we were talking about it, that is generally how you stop a four-wide receiver offense, something the Bills run 15% of all snaps. Having Beasley, Gabe Davis, John Brown, Stephon Diggs, you'd be dumb not to try to run four-wide receiver sets out of that. Yeah. They don't play enough dime like they used to under their old defensive coordinator. They don't play the same amount of dime defense, and that creates mismatches for those players not on the outside. That definitely lends itself to the strength of our wide receiver group beyond those top two targets, and that's going to be important, that secondary and tertiary production. When you look at how the Ravens played the Titans last week, A.J. Brown had 52 of his 83 yards on that one opening scripted touchdown drive. From that point, think about that, 52-83, so he had 31 yards for the rest of the game after the first drive. They took him away. Wide receiver number two, Corey Davis, went down with an injury, and no one else on the team was able to contribute. And the result was a Titans team that scored 10 points in the first quarter and finished the game with just 13. The thing that was glaring Their number three, number four, and number five wide receivers on the depth chart saw just three catches on five targets for 23 yards. (laughs) Wow, you suck at this. They indeed suck at that. And that's the reason why in a one-score football game, they still couldn't find any footing. The Bills are so much more talented in terms of both depth and scheme at those positions. And the key is going to be... For Brian Dable to get Beasley, Davis, and McKenzie matched up in the middle of the field against those linebackers and against those safeties, not only to find production, but also to get them to to kind of delay the blitz. If we can hit them early and often, 
in those areas, they're going to have no choice but to bring the linebackers out of blitzing formations. They're going to have to try to cover those areas of the field. I think that we are singularly equipped to take advantage of this team in that in that area. And on the flip side for the Buffalo Bills defense, avoid the eye candy. Against the Colts, the Bills were repeatedly fooled by eye candy. Their aggressiveness against the rushing attack and just their want to come downhill against the run led to a giant number of chunk plays by the tight ends and wide receivers like we talked about with Greg Thompson yesterday. That's a solid warm-up for this matchup, but this offense is, I mean, that's an appetizer. This is the main course. This is it. There is going to be an incredible amount of pre-snap motion, run fakes, run option plays. The defense has to find a way to tightrope walk that line between aggressive play and assignment sound play. Because if they fall for the same things they fell for against Indy, taking poor angles, missing assignments, missing tackles, this rank, this is a Ravens offense that is literally built to prey on that. And like a Sherman tank, just grind you to pieces. They won't do it quickly. It's not going to be quick strike plays. It's going to be them just mercilessly grinding you down into nothing because of, as a consequence of your own mistakes. We're going to have to see a tenacious team defense that the Bills showed in the red zone against Indianapolis, holding them to just two of five, despite having multiple attempts from inside the five-yard line. But we're going to need to see that on almost an every-down basis. And that's going to be really, I mean, it's going to be on McDermott and Leslie Frazier to keep those guys focused and dialed in. Right? Yeah. It's going to be a, this is going to be a hell of a matchup here. What are your expectations for this game? After hearing this conversation, I kind of think it uh, snow's definitely going to play a factor in it because I think if, it, it's, if it's going to end up snowing on Saturday, that you know that's going to slow down Lamar Jackson and his speed. I don't know how what that'll do with Josh Allen's vision throwing the ball. I mean, I believe in Josh Allen's arm strength to cut through the wind and the and the weather conditions. I mean, that's why they drafted him. Also, why they drafted EJ Manuel, but that's <laughs> completely different. I don't know. I, I kind of feel another. I, I kind of feel something low scoring with this game. When I think about how I feel about this, I'm somewhat relieved to be honest, because we're a week removed from the entire country taking the Bills to beat the Indianapolis Colts, and we've now assumed our role as underdog from a national perception. Something that you know, regardless of what they say in the locker room, resonates. I mean, this is from ESPN's Hot Take Factory, Stephen A. Smith. An unequivocal no. To win the Super Bowl, you've got to get to the AFC Championship game first. How the hell are you going to do that getting through the Baltimore Ravens? I don't see that happening. Now, that Lamar Jackson has got that monkey off his back, that proverbial monkey off his back, having won a playoff game. How that pressure ultimately is dissipated dramatically, him going up against the Buffalo Bills and being able to create the havoc that he's able to create, combined with that defense, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. And by it, he's referring to a Buffalo Bills victory. That last statement, getting over the hump, monkeys off backs, the dissipation of pressure. Who the hell says that that can't be the Buffalo Bills? The same can't be said for this team. In fact, I'd argue that while that one minute win might release some pressure on Baltimore's quarterback, our victory might have done that for our entire staff. Sean McDermott, the first playoff win of his career, and a game where his team came out a little tight, but ultimately dug deep, 
hung in when things got hairy and found a way to squeak out the win. Brian Dable, first playoff win of his career, a game where his play calling, as we talked about with Thompson, a little suspect at times, yet they did enough to get it done. Leslie Frazier, his first playoff win as a head coach or defensive coordinator since 2009. And Josh Allen, first playoff win as a quarterback, avenging the loss against Houston like he swore he would for an entire calendar year. Win as a quarterback, avenging the loss against Houston like he swore he would for an entire calendar year. But sure, sure. Somehow, none of that benefits the Bills. The only person that benefits from winning that first one is Lamar Jackson, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't. A lot, you know, like you said, McDermott playoff win. Think of like us as a city collectively that went off our our backs, and we're gonna have what seven thousand in the stands. You know, I'm confident they'll make some kind of impact, yeah. if not for. Josh Allen's ability to draw people off sides, which is immaculate. Half this roster was lacking in a postseason victory before Saturday. And so with that in mind, why can't our hard-fought victory over in Indianapolis have the same propelling effect? It's not for me to answer that. It's up to this coaching staff and team. Saturday's their opportunity to prove that they're not just characters in somebody else. <laughs> they're not just characters in somebody else's story. And some other quarterback's tale of ascension and redemption and all of these things that... Chris, they're, they're professional bloviators. These analysts have to create narratives, right? Correct. That's what they get paid to do. This is the Bills' opportunity to prove that they're the hero in this story, not Lamar Jackson. Because you know that's what this is, right? Yeah. It's it's the former MVP with a down year and never won a playoff game, bop, 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 bop. Well, here's the aspiring MVP trying to make a name for himself despite all odds. Here's your opportunity to do it. They need to prove that they're capable of writing their own story. I'm looking forward to seeing if this 2020 Bills team is up to the task of writing that next chapter of what comes for the Buffalo Bills as a franchise. It's going to be exciting. I'm nervous, but it's a good nervous. After everything we've been through, after everything we've experienced this season, why not? Why not one more? Why not us? Why not us? Chris, it's where I want to leave everybody. This was a this was a hell of a week of football. Probably one of the best weeks of podcasting I've personally had. I don't yeah. know about you. Hell of a time. Cheers. Cheers. Folks, we will see you on sa- Saturday night. Here it comes. There again. I don't feel the same dread that I felt last week. I just don't. And I feel better talking to Ken about this because I feel like there are places that we're going to be able to hurt this Baltimore team. We're a better version of the Buffalo Bills who came out last year and came up just inches short. But it's on them to go prove it. And I can't wait to see it. Guys, thank you so much for showing up every single week this season, all week long this week. we got to get the hell out of here, though. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been your Rock Pile Report.